from ghost to ghost to ghost, you're listening to Scara Informa. This week, we bring you a special episode recorded live last week for CJSR's annual fundraising drive. Even though we're now post-Halloween, I hope you're not done with spooky stories, because our hosts, Sonic and Charlotte, are going to be bringing you some chills and thrills from beneath the earth. And no, I'm not talking about zombies. So stay tuned to hear more. Welcome back to Scara Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason. And my name is Sonic Patel. We'll be your hosts for the next hour of spooky, scary, and downright terrifying environmental news and stories. This week, we deliver Terra Informa to you live from CJSR Studios as part of our annual fun drive. We are located here on Amiskatchewaskaigan on Treaty 6 land, the historic and present territory of the Cree, the Kodasu, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. It is also a traditional and current gathering place for the Métis. I want to emphasize that this is the present territory of Indigenous people who continue to resist and persist in this area. This isn't a historic acknowledgement, but a continuing relationship that centers listening to Indigenous people and taking meaningful action. As a settler, consider how you benefit from the settler colonial state and what, is meant, what it means to live on stolen land. Consider the ways in which you as an individual can uphold treaty and decolonize your thinking. CJSR is a volunteer-powered radio station, and we would not exist without the support of our listeners. This year, our fun drive theme is Homegrown Radio, and since Halloween is just a few days away, we thought, what's more natural than an episode about the terrifying world of plants? Plants? Really? What's so scary about plants? Why don't you wait and listen to the episode, Charlotte? <laughs> Instead of interrupting me. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> plants have some pretty creepy to downright scary habits. We'll hear about poisonous plants and spooky mushrooms, a cautionary tale about houseplants, and a little Halloween lore. Trust me, you'll be scarified. We'll see about that. Our first story today comes from Margaret Detlaff, a plant researcher at the University of Alberta. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about what you study and why plant defenses and poisonous plants are interesting to you? Sure. So um, I'm a PhD student, or I just finished my PhD looking at plant defenses and the roles they play in uh, structuring our ecosystems. And I think plant defenses are really interesting because they really highlight the way that plants are very dynamic organisms in a way that people don't normally think about. Plants can't move, they can't run away if something tries to attack them. And so instead they've developed this incredible suite of defenses to help um, defend themselves when things sort of go wrong. And plant chemical defenses, poisons, toxins, whatever you want to call them, are a really big part of that. And they're also really integral to the sort of human experience over um, the long term. And so I think they're sort of a fascinating from that scientific and from that sociological perspective. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. So. Uh, we all know plants don't have fangs or stingers, and you mentioned they can't run away. So how do they actually deliver their, uh, their poisons or their defenses? So most plants are only interested in defending themselves from being eaten. And so the primary way that an organism would encounter these chemical defenses is by eating or smoking a plant um, that, that has these chemical defenses. Um, but there are, of course, plants that can sort of harm you on contact. If you've ever 
when walking in the forest and ran across some stinging nettle. That's very similar to a fang injecting you with venom. Uh, it's a little tube, you touch the end of it, and the uh, poison sort of rushes out of the tube and onto your skin. So it's very similar to that. Um, but, you know, it's a very clear case of they won't hurt you if you don't come near them. Fair. So how, how poisonous are plants? Is Are there plants that could kill you just by touching them? I wouldn't be comfortable saying yes, there are plants that can just kill you by touching them, but there are definitely some plants, not native in particular to Alberta, um, that are really unpleasant if you come in contact with them, even in a relatively casual way. So there's a tree that's native to Florida, it's called the machineal tree, and if you sit under it during a rainstorm, the chemicals will come out of the leaves and can cause horrible burns on your body. If you burn the wood and inhale the smoke, it can give you a really serious case of poisoning. And there are other examples of plants that are kind of like stinging nettle, but many times worse, that sort of stick physical needles into your skin and if you can't really get those out. So there are plants that you definitely don't want to come in contact with. And you should know what you're touching and what you're eating if you're out in the forest, but in general, you're pretty safe from plants. So some plants can move in response to stimuli. Uh, are there plants that attack people? It's no, uh, you know, little shop of horror situation going on. Um, plants, for them, moving is very costly in terms of energy. And just like anything, plants want to stay alive and have kids. And they need as many resources as possible as they can to reproduce. And wasting resources moving when they don't have to is a really good way of not successfully reproducing. So they don't move unless they have to, and they typically only move to get food in a way they couldn't otherwise, which is what Venus flytraps are doing. They're growing in soil that is so poor of nutrients that the only way they can get them is by eating bugs, pretty much. Or there are some plants that if you touch them, they will sort of close up their leaves, and that's probably to deter animals from eating them, although it's still not entirely clear exactly if that is the case of why these, it's called the sensitive plant, mimosas, why they close up if you touch them. Um, yeah. Cool. So I imagine out there, there is an inventory of poisonous plants. I'm envisioning a spell book that's written in runes, um, and it's buried in the archives of some, some estate house library. Have you found any macabre references, um, maybe non-academic, like a guide to tending poisonous plants? People are interested in growing pretty much everything. Uh, just today, I was looking up how to care for a Venus flytrap uh, we just got in my lab. Unfortunately, the study of plants does not, in my experience, extend, extend to haunted uh, libraries and things like that. But it might just be that we're not in um, uh, places where they've had sort of physical libraries long enough, traditional physical libraries long enough in ways to be haunted. Um, I'm sorry to, to burst your bubble on that front. It's not Harry Potter everywhere. I forgive you. <laughs> uh, how are poisonous plants used today? Like, are there any that you know of that are used in, like, cosmetics or medicine? So humans have been using poisonous plants, like I said, since sort of the beginning of our usage. We started using them as dyes. Like, the, many of the first traditional clothing dyes were plant chemicals that can kill other organisms. And many of the plants or of the drugs that our listeners may um, enjoy recreationally or um, to help keep themselves alive come from plants. Tobacco, uh, nicotine in tobacco is a defense chemical. It kills insects. The uh, opium poppies, that kills insects. 
And there's this huge, huge trade in pharmaceutical um, research coming from plants because unlike starting from scratch where you don't know what a chemical is going to do until you test it out, plants have gone through this bottleneck of evolution. So every chemical that exists in a plant has passed through a filter of does it do something biologically active in the environment and is it cost effective for the plants to produce proportional to its impact. And so researchers who go into this looking at these plant chemicals are starting with an advantage. This can be an issue because it means people start crawling through forested areas and cutting down trees um, that might already be endangered. For example, they discovered that uh, the western yew tree, which grows in the rainforests in BC, was a really, really effective breast cancer fighting drug in its, in its leaves. And this was a really big concern because yews don't grow very commonly and people were really worried about sort of deforestation and, and the removal of these trees on the landscape and until the chemists figured out a way to synthetically generate this chemical. So it's this big sort of tug of war between environmentalism and, and drug development um, that's going on all over the world and particularly in communities and areas where who owns the land and who owns the intellectual property or the financial benefit from these plants is unclear. And so it's sort of a, it's a big issue in the, in the industry there. For sure, yeah. All right. In your personal, professional, or botanical experience, has a plant ever done something that really freaked you out? I mean, two-thirds of my experimental trees died after I planted them, which was very heartbreaking <laughs> um, for my PhD research and professional career. Uh, but actually, I find sort of mushrooms and fungi to be kind of more terrifying than plants. You guys might have talked about in the past the fungus that invades the minds of ants and takes them over like zombies, right? Yes. That to me is super terrifying, yes. right? It gets into the ant's body, takes control of their limbs. The ants are still alive and they still know what's going on, but they have no control over the situation. They get taken up to the top of a tree and die while like a literal recreation of the movie Alien happens where the recruiting <laughs> body of the fungus, the mushroom, erupts from their head and sends spores everywhere to infect the next generation of insects. So to me, that is the most terrifying thing in nature. Absolutely, 100%. That is spooky. <laughs> uh, so... That wraps up our questions for you. Thank you so much uh, for coming in, Margaret. We really appreciate you setting the tone for the Scara Informa episode with all your scary plant information. Yeah, thanks so much for um, having me. I really enjoyed it. No prob. And now I have a question for you, Sonic. Oh, no. Have you ever killed a houseplant? I have killed a houseplant. This is not admissible in court, by the way. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> but I have, and her name was Cecilia, and she was a pink calicho. Does the memory of it haunt you? Every time I close my eyes, I can see her. Well, this next story might remind you of dear, departed Cecilia. Listen, I'm a millennial. We love plants. BuzzFeed says so. But I wasn't born with a green thumb. I buy them and they all just sort of die. I'm not saying I don't try. I water them or, or overwater them. I give them light. Too much, not enough. God, these plants are demanding. It all started a couple weeks ago after I came back from a trip and found a graveyard in my apartment. Dead snake plants, coffee plants, my avocado grown from seed, even my fiddly fig. 
Their once green leaves turned brown and sad. Their healthy branches were now wilted and weak. I tried to revive them. I watered them, trimmed most of the dead branches, pulled them closer to the window. I was doing the best I could, but deep down, I knew it was futile. My beloved plants were dead. Only my two succulents remained alive. How could I have been so forgetful? That's when things changed. It was subtle at first. A leaky faucet, the lights would flicker, but it got worse. Taps were turning on by themselves, full blast. Lights turned on and off by themselves, as if on some unknown timer. My apartment would go from hot and humid, almost tropical, to cool and breezy. From the sunny window where I kept my houseplants, a darkness started to creep in. I began to feel an ominous presence, something else in my apartment with me. Yeah, we got a call around 10 p.m. last night, some girl complaining she was being haunted by her dead houseplants. Honestly, thought it was a joke at first, someone pulling our leg. This time of year we get a lot of that, kids trying to be funny. But there was something in her voice that made me pause. Either she was a damn good actor, or this was real. And I was curious. You know, we'd never dealt with paranormal activity of the plant variety. They arrived around nine the next day. Two people decked out in all this weird equipment. I felt a little silly calling them to my place. I mean, all those ghost hunter shows seem so scripted. Was I just being scammed? But I was desperate. I hadn't slept for two weeks. Every time I shut my eyes, all I could see was my sad plants, slowly dying of neglect and dehydration, crying out for water and love. It was torture. Yeah, so we set up our REM pod recorder in the house to try and capture what the spirits wanted. It was pretty quiet most of the night. But then the clock struck 3 a.m., and it all went down. Just like the homeowner said, the lights started turning on and off, on and off, and the faucets came on full blast, watermarks and stains started spreading across the walls, and the darkness emanating from the window corner began to pulse. Spirits, can you hear me? What disturbs you? Why are you haunting this girl, I said. And suddenly, the apartment was silent, and the lights went out, and then a single light shone in the windowsill. The last thing I remember about that night was the noise of the taps and the lights. It was deafening. I was so tired. And then I was asleep. At least, it felt like sleep. And then it came to me. A vision of my poor plants over the two weeks I was away. But I wasn't watching with my human eyes. I had senses, like a plant. I was seeing in colors and vibrations that no person could know. I was watching from the eyes of my succulents. We could tell there was a malevolent force emanating from the creeping darkness where several houseplants had died. And now we understood why. These houseplants had died under terrible conditions, a slow death from neglect over days, and the succulents had to watch it all. It was their anger that was feeding the darkness and causing the paranormal activity. Did you know plants can communicate? They send warnings to each other about insects and other stresses. While the homeowners' tropicals and ferns were dying of thirst, the succulents heard their agony, but couldn't do anything. So they reached out from their pots, and something paranormal answered. I guess this is where it got real weird. Lots of plants are symbiotic, living in relationship with fungi or evolving in relationship with animals. What we saw that night was a plant in a mutually beneficial relationship with a ghost. So I was possessed by a ghost. That was inhabiting my succulents. Weird, right? Well, I had something to learn. 
What this encounter with the paranormal taught me was that I had to make amends to my houseplants. And I did. I realize now that houseplants have their own needs and wants. Even if a fiddle leaf fig is an insta-perfect plant to have, I don't have the right light or moisture in my apartment, and at the end of the day, it's the plants that suffer. While I still love houseplants, I know my abilities, and I don't force houseplants into a life of torture just for a look. I stick to succulents because that's my speed, and when I go away, I get a plant sitter. The end. <laughs> wow, absolutely terrifying. I will never neglect my houseplants again. The spooky sound effects in that piece were provided by Lee Rosefear. You know what Margaret mentioned that gives me nightmares? What? Mushrooms. They're not a plant. They're not an animal, and they're not to be underestimated. Well, I'm gonna give you nightmares because Tara and former Hannah Cunningham did record a talk with Alberta Mycological Society member Robert Rogers to get more information on the strange and macabre nature of mushrooms. Former Hannah Cunningham, and I'm speaking with Robert Rogers. And Robert, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, certainly. I'm a, a, a well-known herbalist, uh, over 50 years in Edmonton area. Also have a assistant clinical professorship in family medicine at your university. And I've written over 54 books on topics of medicinal plants and mushrooms. Wow, that's awesome. So you're definitely an, an expert <laughs> in the area. Well, a little bit. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about cordyceps and what's maybe so spooky about them. Certainly. Well, you know, the original cordyceps on the market uh, was from a Tibetan plateau uh, known in Tibet as uh, Yartsa Gunbu, uh, the cordyceps. Uh, sinensis. And uh, it was widely harvested for a number of years. It it also has a funny name called winter worm summer grass and, uh, you know, was wild harvested and became very, very popular and increased in price to the point where at one point it was worth over $50,000 a kilo uh, for this wild harvested uh, uh, mushroom slash uh, uh, moth larvae. And so, uh, that 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 is what most people are aware of. Yeah, uh, the anti-rejection drug uh, cyclosporin was derived from a anamorph of a related cordyceps species found in the uh, dirt in Norway, and uh, it helps save people's lives by when people have an organ transplant. Uh, but it also cumulatively uh, affects the kidney function over time. 
and they found that when people took cordyceps as a supplement with cyclosporin, they could really reduce the amount of drug needed to get the same benefit, uh, helping spare the kidneys from damage. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. With cordyceps, are all of them required to have an insect host? Uh, In the wild, yes. They will have ants, uh, which I've seen on trees in South Carolina. They also have beetles. I've I've collected uh, cordyceps militaris out in the Sunshine Coast, found on a beetle. So they all have some kind of an insect host. Okay, and could you describe this this host relationship between the cordyceps and the insect and what goes on there? Yeah, certainly. Well, in many cases, I, uh, what happens is that the spores of the mushroom itself infect the insect and take over, literally take over the brain of that insect to the point of where they actually start to um, uh, grow inside the body and then they actually form a fruiting body out of the head or the abdomen of these various uh, insects, and then they sporulate again, and then they repeat their life cycle. So they literally actually control the insect for a period of time before the, the insect actually dies. Wow. So the, the insect is, while it's infected, like still moving around? And... Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in the case of ants, sometimes it will actually control the ant so that it goes up to the highest leaf and the highest twig and the can- tree canopy so that when it does finally sporulate, it, it goes over the l- largest, widest uh, um, uh, area of the forest so that it can be opportunistic to hit another insect and continue the cycle. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. It is, yeah. <laughs> Very, you're just lucky they're not too big. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So do we have any cordyceps in Canada? Yes, as I mentioned, I have harvested the cordyceps militaris. Uh, in the Sunshine Coast, and that is the one that now the fruiting body of that mushroom is become uh, becoming increasingly widely available to health consumers because the active ingredient in in it, cordycepin, is very close to adenosine. And if you know your biochemistry at all, adenosine is associated with the ATP or energy production in our body. So very much a energy boost, testosterone, sexual tonic, hence the uh, interest in cordyceps. Oh, okay. Interesting. And do you have a favorite cordyceps? Yeah, that is my favorite, uh, the the cordyceps militaris, simply because it can be grown in the laboratory without an insect host, which is very important because the FDA and Health Canada do not like us growing food products on insects, mm. understandably. Yes. Yeah, they don't mind a few ply wings in your peanut butter, but they don't like actually actively growing things on insects. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you heard any sort of macabre stories about about fungi or if there's any superstitions that you know of related to fungi or maybe cordyceps? Well, yeah, and fungi, fungi in general, uh, there's a couple of phrases that are really worth noting. Uh, the, there's always a little bit of gala humor with collecting mushrooms. And, and the one is that you can eat any mushroom once. <laughs> yeah. And the other is there are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters. But there are no old and bold mushroom hunters. So, yeah, so there are stories out there. There's also a lot of mythology out there. I mean, the uh, mushroom that Alice in Wonderland stumbled upon, the Amanita muscaria, uh, is often listed in a lot of mushroom guides as a poisonous mushroom. But in fact, it's a hallucinogenic or entheogenic mushroom. It was used for for spiritual journeys by shaman and things like that. Well, thank you so much, Robert, uh, for taking the time to speak with us. No problem. I hope that uh, everybody has a spooky Halloween. Yes, thank you, and you too. Okay, (laughs) all the best. That was Hannah Cunningham talking with Robert Rogers of the Alberta Mycological Society, mixed with a little song called Ghosts or Frock by the band Loyalty Freak Music. <laughs> what would you say is the scariest member of the Gord family? Ooh, that's a tough one. Is I it? I think I would say the pumpkins with the ones with the little, like, wart-looking things on them. You know, the bumpy ones. Bumpy Gord. <laughs> The Bumpy Gourd. <laughs> My nickname Official in high name. school. <laughs> yeah. So our next story is a little recollection of how the simple pumpkin became the infamous jack-o'-lantern. So jack-o'-lanterns have been around for at least 10,000 years, making them almost as old as Terra Informa. This practice originally came from Ireland, uh, which is a country that's known for their abundant pumpkins. Uh, that's a joke. The original jack-o'-lanterns were actually large turnips or beets. Uh, listeners at home, feel free to search up uh, turnip jack-o'-lanterns because they are truly terrifying. So, so scary. <laughs> there are claims that these lanterns were used either to represent evil spirits or ward them off. <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> so eventually this practice became commonly associated with the Festival of Samhain. Lasting from the 31st of October to the 1st of November, this festival marks the end of the harvest season. Uh, this festival and the practice of hollowing out vegetables to act as lanterns was popular in Ireland and northern Scotland. Samhain also marked the start of darker days and was associated with spirits roaming the world. Lanterns welcomed spirits to villagers' homes, and the festival saw people dressing in mass and going door-to-door to share a poem in exchange for food. It sounds a little bit familiar. So when European colonists arrived in North America, they brought many of their traditions with them, including the pagan holiday of Samhain. In North America, pumpkins were more common than in Europe, and the orange gourd became the lantern of choice. The term jack-o'-lantern came from Britain, where it referred to a man with a lantern or a night watchman. The term was also used to describe a flame-like light that came from decomposing plants in the marshes. You might know this better by the term will-o'-wisp. There's another theory for the name that comes from English folklore. This is the tale of Stingy Jack. Stingy Jack was a drunk old man who loved playing pranks on people. In modern day, he would probably be a viral YouTube star. Uh, One day, he tricked Satan into climbing up a tree and then placed crosses around the base so that he couldn't come down. Absolutely wrecked him. (laughs) 
the devil made a deal not to take Stingy Jack's soul in exchange for removing the crosses so he could get out of this tree. Fast forward until Jack died, which was probably like five years back then. Uh, Stingy Jack gets to heaven and is not allowed in because, honestly, he's kind of a prick. So he heads down to hell, but the devil decides to stick to his word. He seems like a really cool guy and sends him to the netherworld, which is between heaven and hell. The devil also lends him an ember so that he can light his way. And Jack happens to have a turn up because of course he would. And he carves it and he sticks the ember in it. And now Jack roams the earth with his jack-o'-lantern in hand. So if you're carving a jack-o'-lantern this year, you can consider donating your pumpkin. Uh, Several farm rescues will accept pumpkins as feed for their pigs or other animals. So keep your eyes and ears out for donation opportunities near you or check out the City of Edmonton compost. Well, I think we got to wrap up, Sonic. Oh, no. Uh, That's unfortunate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is all the time that we have for this week's Scara Informa Spooktacular. Thank you to our volunteers, Sonic Patel, Charlotte Thomason, Elizabeth Dowdle, Carter Grozitza, and Hannah Cunningham for this week's episode. Consider a donation to your local radio station to help keep stories like this on the air. I'm Charlie Blay. Thanks for tuning in to an edit of our special live Fun Drive Halloween Spooktacular. Catch us next week, right here on Terror Informa.